This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. And please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. We're looking this evening at verses 1 through 11. In many ways, this passage forms a, uh, a second half uh, to the passage that we looked at last time, although it can certainly stand on its own as we look at it this evening. But it begins with the word, therefore, uh, pointing back, of course, to what came before, where the writer of the Hebrews warns uh, against a hardened heart, hardened toward the Lord, hardened toward his will, hardened where sin is concerned. So hear the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. We who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, thank you for the authority, thank you for the clarity, thank you for the truth that it comes to us with. And Father, we pray as we study the scriptures this evening that you would illumine our minds, would enable us to understand those things you would have us learn and grow in this evening, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you ask runners why they run, and there's plenty of good reason to ask runners why they run, you'll get any kind of uh, various answers uh, for many of them. It's for their health, uh, or concerns about their heart, or blood pressure, or just general fitness. Uh, some run just to relieve stress. Some run for fresh air. Some demented souls run for fun. Uh, Kate, any other any other reasons? Anybody else? Kevin? Any? Any? Mike? 
The depravity of man, thanks. You're, you're being chased. That's always a good reason to run. Well, I'll tell you why I run. When I run, my foot's bothering me, so I'm not running regularly right now. But when I run, the reason is because it feels so good when I stop. It's a good feeling. It really is. You, you feel good. You've gotten the run, and it's, it's over. Uh, you know, burn calories. Hey, you do feel good. Running makes you feel good. But it feels so good when you stop. It's finally over. Any kind of rest after uh, hard exertion is is a sweet thing, a pleasant thing. After toil, whether it's uh, the, the physical exertion of running or bicycling or some other form of exercise or just a long day of work or a long day as a homemaker or teacher or whatever it might be, uh, it's always nice and it's a good feeling after hard work to be able to rest and we even speak of, of the end of our lives in that term. When someone completes the course of their life, the toils of life, we say that he or she is laid to his rest. Well, our passage this evening is about rest. Not so much the kind of physical rest that comes after, uh, after a run or after work. And not so much the rest of the body, but rest of the soul, spiritual rest, a rest as a state or a condition that we enjoy. Uh, and we do enjoy this rest that he's talking about in this life, to be sure. Uh, and yet the fullness of it comes only after this life, as we'll see. Now, as I said, in chapter 3, he has been warning the people that they not imitate what happened to the saints of the Lord in the Old Testament, people of God, the covenant people who, uh, many of them, uh, as he quotes from Psalm 95 there, did rebel in the wilderness, in their unbelief, in their lack of God's ability uh, to bring them into the promised land. Uh, they go astray. He says, they've not known my ways. And so he says in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And he warns, be careful. You don't have that same kind of heart. Well, now he turns around and talks about the same situation, but more from the standpoint of the rest that was before the people of God. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Uh, first, he looked last time at the hardness of their heart that they weren't able to enter in. And then he talks about that rest that is, is available to us. So as we look at this passage tonight, chapter 4, uh, 1 through 11, what is to think of it basically in three parts. First, the availability of this rest. Does this have anything to do with us today? Uh, second, the, some illustrations that he uses to, to depict this rest. And then finally, the urgency of, of what he's talking about here and what that has to say to us. So first of all, the availability of it. So he talked about Israel a long time ago. Well, God has not put us out in the wilderness about to lead us to take over a foreign nation. Does this have anything to say to us today? Well, in fact, it does. Notice in uh, verse 1, God's promise of rest still stands. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, Hebrews was written a long time ago basically two millennia ago. However, for him, writing in, in, when he did in the first century, the events of the Old Testament were ancient history to him. The events that he talks about back in chapter 3 
uh, were a very long time before when he wrote these words. And nevertheless, he can say to his, his current day readers, this rest, this promise of entering this rest still stands. Now, he was in a very different situation than Israel in the Old Testament. So obviously, he's talking about a rest that is different from that of entering the land of Canaan. He's talking about a rest that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise remains, although it's for a different kind of rest, not Canaan, but that to which Canaan was a type or a pointer, uh, a symbol of a greater rest that is available in Christ Jesus now in this life and certainly for the life that is to come. And so he very clearly is changing the, the content of what the rest entails. For Israel, as we saw and said this morning, that the Exodus was a type of our salvation in Christ, uh, so entering the promised land of Canaan was a type of the rest, the, the goal that God's salvation is headed toward. Well, it too points to the, the new heavens, the new earth, the rest, ultimately, that we have in Christ. We enjoy it now, to be sure. And yet, we will enter it fully, uh, of course, when Christ returns, the resurrection, new heavens and new earth. Or, uh, certainly to a greater degree, when if we should die and our souls are with the Lord, there's rest there, to be sure, as well. But the fullness will come with the consummation of all things. Again, you find this whole idea of the already and not yet, what we already enjoy in Christ, which is rest, very real rest in Christ, and yet what we do not have in its fullness, but await. So the promise of rest still stands. It is still available, although it's a little bit different. It's a fuller rest, a greater rest, to which Canaan uh, only pointed. But there is a reason to fear about this availability. Notice uh, the end of verse 1. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith uh, with those who listened. There's reason to fear. We've heard good news just like they did. They had good news. One, God had brought them out of Egypt. Two, he is bringing them into a land uh, described as flowing with milk and honey. You know, a bountiful land, a pleasant land, great place to be. And the spies went in and searched it out, and they came back, and they, they not a one of them had anything bad to say about the land itself. They said it is a pleasant land. It is flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's productive. It's abundant. It's pleasant. It's a good land. But as you know, the ten said, however, the inhabitants are like giants and we're like little grasshoppers before them and there's just no way we can take it. You know, nice place to be, but forget about it. Uh, That was good news, but their unbelief kept them out of it. And that's what he says here. The good news came to us just as it came to them. However, the problem was they didn't hear the good news and accompany the, good, the hearing of the good news with faith in it. So he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, you know the book of Hebrews, you know later he t- begins to get into talking about some who seem to have departed from the faith uh, in some very specific ways. It's a very uh, 
dire ways. Well, he's not quite there yet, but we already have seen in our study of Hebrews that there is a concern about a drawing back from Christ, about returning to old ways in Judaism that seemed safer, that uh, were old and familiar, uh, that may be easier, specifically in face of persecution. And so even here, he's warning them against the danger of hearing good news and yet not believing it, turning away from it, just as they did in the wilderness. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, notice he doesn't say, you, you should fear, in case you don't reach it. He said, let us fear. There should be a fear in the church that anyone should fail to reach that goal, that any one of you, that any one of us should, uh, should turn away, should fall away. Because of a hardened heart. Uh, Why? The good news came to us just as to them, yes. But the message they heard did not benefit them. They didn't go into Canaan. They died in the wilderness. Because, as he says, the end of verse 2, they were not united by faith with those who listened. There were those who believed. uh, Who did go into the land. Uh, And later, their children for whom they expressed so much concern and fear, uh, went in under Joshua and took the land. But the problem was there was good news, but there was not faith. Which just goes to tell us that, especially for those of us who grow up in the church, hearing the good news week after week after week after week after week is not the same thing as believing the good news unto salvation. It's not the same thing as being united by faith with those who listened. There are people who confuse sitting in church week after week among people who love the Lord with being a Christian. It's not, unless you share the same faith in Christ consciously, intentionally, purposely as those around you. We need to make that clear for all of us, and particularly for our children that grow up hearing these things, that can seem rather commonplace to them, that they unite the hearing of the good news with faith in the good news, faith in the Savior uh, that good news points to. So the availability of the rest is, is, is very much real. And so... He goes on to say in, uh, in verse 2, they were not united by faith with those who listened. Don't confuse being among the people of God with being part of the people of God. I like the way one writer puts it. He says there are many different kinds of hearing in this world. Because there are a lot of people who hear the gospel, sit in churches. There's indifferent hearing, disinterested hearing, critical hearing, skeptical hearing, cynical hearing. The hearing that matters is the hearing that listens eagerly, believes, and acts. The promises of God are not merely beautiful pieces of literature. They are promises on which a man is meant to stake his life and dominate his action. You see, the problem is they all heard the good news. The problem is not all shared the same faith as those who listened and were saved. 
Now, so he, he talks about the availability of this rest. Uh, yes, a rest is available, an even more glorious rest. Now he talks about some illustrations of it, just to flesh out this whole idea a little bit more. And there's a couple in particular uh, or, or here in these verses before us. First of all, God's rest on the seventh day. Now, this is the prototype for rest, right? God created in six days, rested on the seventh day. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, there's a little bit of a jump. It's not easy to follow his train of thought here. Uh, But what he's saying is, we who have believed enter the rest, just like he warned them, they would not enter the rest, which implies there's a rest to be entered although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This rest was there, the rest of God, from the beginning of that creation week. So it's there, and he jumps back to that to say this rest was there all along from the beginning, but they didn't enter it because of the wrath of God upon their unbelief. That rest is is God's rest. Now you'll notice, think back on the creation week, uh, that each day was distinct There was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, uh, and so forth of creation. Then on the seventh day, God rested, and creation ends at that point. Now, God is still sovereign. He's ruling. He's governing his creation. But he is still, in in a sense, resting in, in a state of rest from that creation. The work was done. And he rested on the seventh day and blessed it, made it holy. And so that rest is there. Now, Some will enter that rest, sharing God's rest, although others will not because of their unbelief. So that's one illustration that he uses here in these verses. Uh, Verse 4, somewhere spoken of, did you ever say, well, I know it says in the Bible such and such, but I don't remember where. Well, he says, for he's spoken somewhere, and several times in Hebrews he likes to refer to it that way, somewhere he says. Which you've got to remember, though, they didn't have chapters and verses like we do. So they were, he was at that disadvantage. Uh, that was much later. But somewhere, spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And all of that based on the idea of God's resting, that there's this rest, that God continues to rest from his work of creation, and those who believed and are in relationship with him enter this land as a symbol of sharing in God's rest. So he's pointing back to that as an illustration. God is resting. Those who believe in his promises enter the land in right relationship to him, share in that that rest. Now, another illustration he uses here has to do with the settlement of Canaan under Joshua. And he mentions this in verse 8. What he said before is based on God's resting. Um, But there's also rest in going into the land of Canaan, in a sense. Because they did. Later generate the later generation did go in. You can read about it in Joshua, correct? They go into the land of Canaan. And, uh, and, and defeat the inhabitants, although not, not entirely. Uh, they didn't do all that God said, but God gave them victory. God gave them the land. They went in under Joshua, and they had rest. 
We read Joshua, by the time you come to the end of the book, they've settled in the promised land. They, they have been the instrument of God's judgment on the, the evil inhabitants of the land. Just like later, Assyria and Babylon were God's instruments of judgment on Israel and Judah and its wickedness. But here they were in the land, and they were settled, and they were established. And the land was allotted and apportioned to the tribes, and they were there. They'd come out of Egypt. You know, these promises God had made to Abraham so long before, and it seemed so much at peril during the time in slavery in Egypt. And now God's brought them out, and in their unbelief, they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and finally they've come in. Joshua's led them, they take the promised land, they settle, they've got the land. It looks like they've, they've got their rest, and they do. There, there was rest, there was a real rest there, and yet there was something more. Verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So that, that rest they had in Canaan was a symbol or type of the rest that is ours in Christ, and yet, if that was all, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So God's rest on the seventh day, Joshua and the, the rest of the people did have, is kind of a symbol of it, and it points to something bigger. And then finally, the Sabbath day itself is an illustration of this rest for God's people. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He changes his terms there. He actually uses a different word from verse 8, the word for rest. Uh, and you come to verse 9, and he does, he, he changes it to the, the Sabbath, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, and in verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, the Sabbath in, in the scriptures in the Old Testament did also look back to God's rest on the seventh day. And it was meant to be a rest for God's people that would remind them of uh, the ultimate rest that they had in God and what he had provided for them, rest from their labors during the week, fellowship, a time to worship, time for fellowship with God. But he brings it up here because the Sabbath, too, is a type of our rest in the Lord, rest from work, uh, time to fellowship with God, Time to enjoy Him. And you think about the Sabbath now. Say, well, we're on the first day of the week. Well, it's true. You know, it does have the idea of God's rest. But now, in the New Covenant, the Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week uh, certainly looks forward, or looks back rather, to the resurrection of Christ. And not so much even back for us, but future. The rest that awaits us in the future, just as the old Sabbath looked back to God's rest as it's pattern. So now in Christ, we're looking forward to all that is ours in Christ. You say, well, why is it the first day of the week? Well, if you look at uh, the, the pattern in the New Testament, the very day of God, of Christ's resurrection from the dead, he met with his disciples that evening. First worship service after the resurrection was an evening service commend you for being here following the biblical pattern. They may, you remember Thomas wasn't there, right? So Thomas is there, you know, so they said we saw the Lord, and Thomas said, well, no, I'm, uh, I won't believe it unless I can see him and touch him and, you know, have it confirmed. Well, then the next Sunday, first day of the week, they're again gathered. This time Thomas is there, and Jesus appears, and you have that episode where Thomas sees the risen 
Jesus, and uh, Jesus appeals to him, shows him his hands and side, and Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. But from that very first day of resurrection, they met with Jesus, met with the Lord on the first day of the week, to the point where that seems to be the pattern. By the time you get to John, the book of Revelation, he could say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, referring to the first day of the week, which began from the very day of Jesus' resurrection through the apostolic pattern all the way up to John. Revelation uh, can refer to that day as the Lord's day. Now, that for us is a sign of our Sabbath rest. it's It's a symbol of our rest that has been won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, a type of our ultimate rest. And it is. It's a day of rest. It's a day of worship and fellowship. It's a day that's different from the the rest of the week. And so those things illustrate it. Whether you're talking about God's rest himself from creation, whether you're talking about the land of Canaan as they went in and finally had a place of their own and finally settled there, or whether you look at the, the the rest that is ours now in Christ Jesus by virtue of his resurrection, which is the defining feature of the Lord's day as opposed to God's rest, the defining feature of the Sabbath, the old Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, now on the first day of the week. Well, the third thing that he mentions here is not only the availability of it, not only his illustrations of it, but the urgency of it. Because it doesn't do you any good unless you have it, right? So chapter 4, verse 11, this, this word of exhortation, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, throughout his argument, he makes some leaps that are not easy to follow. But then he comes to his conclusion, and he's as clear as can be. This must be intentional. Let us strive. The word means to be diligent, to take pains, to make every effort. This is not something to be haphazard about or lackadaisical with. We're talking about your eternal well-being. To be intentional. Let us strive to enter that rest. It took considerable exertion for Israel in the Old Testament to enter into and conquer the promised land. God was with them. God blessed them. God watched over them. God went before them. But they had to go in. They had to do what the Lord said. They couldn't just wait on the other bank of the Jordan and hope God would pick them up and toss them over into the promised land. They had to go through. They had to... Follow the Lord. They had to go into some scary situations. In other words, it was intentional. Well, so it is with us. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. You have to make every effort to repent of sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then follow him, grow in him, be diligent in the means of grace uh, to grow to maturity, continue in maturity in him. By his grace, absolutely, But God does not do that for us. And so it must be intentional. Strive. We must also beware of the danger. Look at the end of verse 11. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Remember who he's talking about. People who witnessed the exodus. People who heard the wailing of the Egyptians when their firstborn children died And the Israelites were spared by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, who ate the Passover meal, 
who witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, who witnessed the destruction of Pharaoh's armies, who witnessed the fire and smoke and rumbling of Sinai, yet grumbled because they thought God couldn't give them water. And grumbled because they thought God couldn't give them the land he had promised to Abraham so long before. Think of all that they saw, and yet they died in the wilderness in their unbelief. The danger is very real. If you've been in this church, you've heard the word of God over and over and over and over. You've heard the gospel over and over and over. And yet there will still be those who perish in their sins because they never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The danger is real so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What sort of disobedience? Unbelief. And so the urgency is very real. To be intentional to enter that rest, to believe in Jesus, to trust in him, to follow him, to look for and cultivate the fruit of being connected to the vine that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you be one of those who die in this wilderness and perish in hell? Or will you be one of those who enters God's rest? Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus even defines salvation himself as this rest. The offer of rest, of the salvation is made. We need to hear it, listen to it, yes, but combine the hearing of it with faith in Jesus, trusting in him alone, not in anything else, but in Jesus alone, who alone can give us rest. And as long as you live, here in this world, until he returns, whichever comes first, that promise of entering his rest still stands. It's all said. Today is the day. The writer of Hebrews says, as long as it's called today, that opportunity to enter the rest in Christ is, is available. And so as he says, let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would. I pray that everyone in this room, everyone in this church, would indeed enter that rest that is in Christ Jesus. Father, protect us from hardened hearts. Protect us from unbelief. Lord, protect us from skeptical, cynical, critical listening. But to hear your voice, to hear your word, to believe on the Lord Jesus, to be saved, to enter rest in him. We pray in his name. Amen.